Father, I just thank you tonight that you are the one who conquers the great enemies of humanity. Sorrow, tears, loss, sickness, and death itself. And Lord, how you go about defeating these enemies in a a most unlikely manner, that you yourself are willing to die. And so, Father, I pray tonight as we hear this message of your triumphal victory, as we begin to realize the amazing nature of your grace for our souls, Lord, and that in the midst of unprecedented evil and growing evil in our times, Lord, and maybe heartache and heartbreak in our souls, Lord, may our eyes lift beyond this earth and may we catch a vision of heaven. I pray that even as John saw an open heaven, even as he was filled with the Spirit, Father, I pray tonight that you would give us an open heaven, that you would fill us with your Spirit, and that we would catch a vision of who you are. Because when that happens, we are forever changed. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're doing a series in the book of Revelation, and we're in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so we're going to turn there this evening, and I want to start by uh, sharing a story with you. Uh, can you. Can you just turn me down a little bit? I feel like I'm talking to myself here. It's coming back at me. Can you imagine the mystery and delight of not just hearing, but actually seeing the story of Jesus for the first time, almost as if you were there? A number of years ago, some missionaries were working with a very primitive tribe in the jungles of uh, Asia, and... When they showed the Jesus film, they had actually worked a long time to understand their language, and so they put the language on the film. Okay, I don't know how they did that, but they did it. So that the people, when they were watching the film, could actually understand what was going on. Now, you have to remember something. We've probably seen a lot of movies in our lifetime. These people had never seen a motion picture. They hadn't seen this before. So when the missionary turns on the projector and the film is rolling and they're watching on a screen what's happening, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, for them it's almost like magic, okay? And there is a sense that it's powerful, right? Come on, we, we get so wrapped up. I mean, you know, if you watch a good movie, sometimes you can find yourself identifying and crying and experiencing what's going on in the story. So here they are watching this, never heard of Jesus, and they see Jesus now you know, walking along, calling disciples, children are walking to him, you know, he's feeding thousands, you know, he's multiplying fish, miracles are happening, sick people are coming back to life, people are tormented by evil spirits and running around naked and out of their minds are now totally set free and fully clothed. And everywhere Jesus goes, something profound and powerful happens. You know, and these people... You know, they can relate to the spiritual world, unlike most of us, because we have kind of desensitized ourselves to all of those things. So this is all really exciting stuff. When they see Jesus coming in and healing and raising up even dead people, can you imagine, you know, the delight in their faces? And then all of a sudden the story changes. We know the story. What happens is Jesus is arrested and eventually he gets beaten. And all of a sudden these tribal people have been watching this movie. They just come unglued at what's going on. They're standing up and they're yelling and they're telling them, stop beating this man, he's innocent. And they're all upset about what's happening. And when they realize it's not stopping on the film, they turn to the missionary who's running the projector and begin attacking him, you know, thinking that somehow he can stop what's going on on the screen. And so he has to shut the projector off and tell them, listen, stop, stop. You know, this is not the end of the story. There's more to what's going to happen here. This is, it's going to, it's going to change, you know. 
And so they all get settled back down. They control their emotions. And how many know the next scene after Jesus being beaten is what? Is the crucifixion scene. That was even worse. Man, they began weeping and wailing and they were grieving. And uh, there was so much noise. The missionary had to stop the film, you know, and tell them, hold it, hold it. You know, just wait. There's more coming and it's going to get better. And finally, we know what the next scene is in the life of Jesus. And it's the resurrection part. And when they start seeing the resurrection, pandemonium breaks out. But it's a totally different kind of pandemonium. I mean, that's like a party. It erupts. These people now are jubilant. The noise is deafening. They're dancing. They're shouting. They're slapping each other on the back. They're rejoicing that Jesus has actually conquered death itself. Missionary when he shuts off the projection this time, does not have to tell them to calm down and wait for what's next. All that was supposed to happen in the story and in their lives was now happening. You see, I can't think of a better description of what worship is. The response of these tribal people to Christ's victory over evil and death is worship. Our positive response to God is what worship is all about. You know, it's not, you know, some ritualistic thing. It's actually our connection, our experience with who God is and what he has done. But so often in our lives, what really invades our life doesn't always seem to be joyful, peaceful, hope-filled. So often there's tragedy and sorrow and pessimism, and hopelessness. And it begins to invade our souls as we watch the growing manacles of evil tighten its grip over those we love, over our nation, over our future. I mean, you know, as I listen to Christians today, there's just a growing sense of frustration and anger. And, uh, you know, even it's amazing how addictive we can come and we start, you know, putting down and speaking evil of, of all that's happening in our world around us. We're upset that, you know, we're even legislating the evil in our world. And yes, I believe we should be upset with that. But we should never lose hope. We should never panic. We should never feel like that's the last word in what's about to happen. As a matter of fact, God always gets the last word in. I've read the Bible. And I've noticed it from Genesis right to Revelation. And when God's having a conversation, he always has the last word. He's always got the closing remarks. And now we're in the book of Revelation, and that's the last word. And we need to hear what he has to say. You know, when, when evil seems to momentarily triumph, often despair is the response that people have. And we can see that. And especially those who don't really know God or do not know God well, we seem to think that evil has won the day. And you can appreciate it. You're watching it. Can you imagine the disciples when they saw Jesus crucified? They thought evil had won the day. They were in a state of deep despair, right? Were they not? Of course they were. They had put their entire life, they had left all that they had. They had forsaken everything to follow Jesus. And now it seemed like the plan was totally destroyed. And that sometimes happens in our lives. We have a plan and then it doesn't work out the way we think it should, right? And we're wondering, God, where are you in this thing? I believe that what we need to do is catch a glimpse of the goodness of God in our souls. And once again, find hope in, you know, really in who God is. You know, you think about it. All it would take tonight to change us is an open heaven. A vision of the power and the authority and the grace and the majesty of Almighty God. Could you imagine like John? 
that we were now caught up, and we're going to read about it in chapter 4. A heaven opened, and he was caught up in the Spirit, and he could see heaven. Could you imagine what that would do to yourself? How many think that might change you? That might impact you? Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, I think of the prophet Isaiah. Here he is, he's grieving the king Uzziah, who had reigned for 52 years, probably brought a measure of stability, had died. But he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he's kind of giving us the time zone. He says, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He had a vision of God. I saw his train fill the temple. Man, you know, that vision impacted Isaiah. He saw himself in light of God and he realized no pretense. He knew he was a sinner. Woe is me. For I am undone. This is a priest. This is a man of God. And you know, I'm going to tell you something. If we stand in the presence of a holy God, we're going to find out how unholy we really are. You won't be able to hide then. There was a reason why Adam and Eve hid in the garden. I mean, you're talking about a pure, holy God. He came undone. But then God did something to provide transformation in his life. He touched his lips with a coal from the altar. And then God said, who will go for us? And immediately Isaiah said, here, my Lord, send me. You know, I can tell when God touches people's lives. I can tell when we have an encounter with God. I can tell when we experience the grace and power of Almighty God. It changes us. Worship will change you. In our greatest hour of need, our ultimate response in the darkest moments of our life should be worship. It should be worship. How did Job handle the great losses in his life? Well, listen to what it says. At this, Job got up, he tore his robe and shaved his head. What happened to Job? Let me give you three things. First of all, he lost every last child in his house. He had ten children. They died all in one moment. That was tragic. He had lost all of his herds. In other words, he'd lost his entire source of wealth. But what a lot of us don't pick up in the story is that Job lost his esteem in his community. You see, the theology in that day was so bad that if, you know, you were wealthy, you were considered righteous. And if you were, un, you know, if you were poor, you were considered someone who God despised. And therefore, you weren't a very godly person. And the fact that Job lost everything, there was an assessment made by the whole community upon Job that he was an unrighteous man. And at that moment, even the drunkards were singing songs and jeering who Job was. Job lost his sense of value and dignity. How many think, all happening at one time. How many think that would be pretty crushing? Would that be despairing? And then on top of that, he becomes afflicted with these terrible uh, sores that were so painful he couldn't even sleep. He wanted to die. What an awful moment. And yet, what does Job do? It says, Job began to worship because Job had a right understanding of who God is. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked will I depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The Bible says Job did not sin with his mouth. That's an amazing statement. You know, some of us might get angry. We'd blame God. We're upset. No, Job didn't do that. He worshiped. Very challenging thing. So what is worship? Our English word means worth-ship. Speaks of the worthiness of an individual to receive special honor in accordance with what? With that worth. In other words, when we worship God, what we're saying is you're a person of absolute worth and therefore I'm giving you honor due to who you are, based on who you are. I'm worshiping you. I'm acknowledging who you are. 
Evelyn Underhill has defined worship as the total adoring response of man to the one eternal self, God self-revealed in time. In other words, it's our total response to God. Our total adoring response to God. You know, I, I don't know how you worship, but, you know, I, I really believe if we, the more we get to know God, the more we're going to involve the entirety of our being in worship. You know, I don't really care what you think of how I worship. I'm, I'm, I, I worship God with all my mind, soul, and strength. I'm going to give him all my energy. And that's just not in a worship service, folks. That is every single day of my life. Because to me, worship does not stop when the song and the music stops. Worship goes on past Sunday. It goes into Monday and Tuesday. It's the giving of our life, an absolute adoring response to God. That's true worship. And uh, A.W. Tozer says, Whoever seeks God as a means towards desired ends will not find God, for God will not be used. And I'm going to just say this in North America. A lot of people who name the name of Jesus are not worshiping the true and biblical God. They're worshiping an idol. You say, what do you mean they're worshiping an idol? A lot of Christians have made God in their own image. A lot of people think God is like themselves. And that's why they can do the things they do. I'm going to tell you right now, God is unlike anyone in this room. You and I may have a proximity. We may have, you know, we may be moving towards him. We may, you know, have a measure of his love, a measure of his peace, a measure of his joy, but we're not like him. He's other than what we are. He's far beyond us. He's beyond our comprehension. You and I cannot fully define him because he's transcendent. He's beyond what the universe can contain. So how in the world are we going to fully grasp what God is like? And God many times does things and we go, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, because you don't know the mind of God. It far exceeds our capacity to understand all that God is doing. And that's why life is primarily a mystery to much, much of what is going on. We don't get it. We don't understand why God allows a family to pass away the way they did here the other day. We don't understand those things. It's a mystery to us. But God fully understands. You and I are actually looking at life almost like a tapestry. You know, on the one side of a tapestry is this beautiful design picture. And on the other side are all these threads that look like they're going every which direction. And there's no rhyme nor reason to them. Isn't that the truth? And you know, I think of it this way, that you and I are looking at this tapestry from the bottom end. Because we're on the earth side and we're looking up and we're going, God, this doesn't make any sense to me. It's just a bunch of scattered thread everywhere. And God is in the heavens looking down at this beautiful, ornate design. And it totally makes sense. And I believe when we're in heaven, we look the other way, we're going to go, it makes total sense to me. But at this point, it makes no sense to me. And that's the way it is. As a matter of fact, if we are worshiping God for what we can get out of it, you know, we're really not worshiping the God of the Bible. We're worshiping ourselves. And a lot of people are involved in self-worship. Real worship does not worship God, you know, for what we get out of him. Though God does bless our lives, no question there. Not what he will do for us. That's not what the motivation for a worship ought to be, but because of who he is to us. He is everything to us. You know, he's the one that created us. We're going to look at that in a minute. So in light of the significant decisions that are being legislated in our country, as we continue the journey of legalizing evil, we need to look up in order not to give up. Did you hear that? We need to look up instead of give up. I'm not suggesting that we stop, you know, speaking out or writing letters or running for office and doing all the things that human beings can do. But at the end of the day, let us never 
fall into despair. And you're going to see that in a few minutes. So what, when evil seems to be prevailing, what should we do? Well, we need to look into the unseen and remember who is in control, and then we need to worship him. We need to worship God. God is in control, folks. You say, well, I don't see it. It just seems like my world is falling apart. Our world is falling apart. Our nation's falling apart. You know, society's falling apart. Can I just tell you in the first century, it was far worse than it is today. Far worse. And so here's this word that God wants to say. And so I love the way Eugene Peterson in his book, Reverse Thunder, he kind of brings up this idea. He says, you know, revelation, first of all, is God's last word on things in life. It's his last word on politics, evil, judgment, but it's also his last word on prayer, worship, and witness. This is what God has to say about these things. How many say, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I don't really care what, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau is saying or President Trump is saying or even if Hillary had gotten in or, you know, if our former prime minister was still running the country. They can say anything they want to. At the end of the day, I want to hear what God has to say. That's all that really matters because at the end of the day, that's what's going to happen. And I'm going to show you that at the end of the message, that God's will will be accomplished. So he goes on to say, the intent in Revelation is not to, you know, is to actually to put us on our knees before God in worship and to set the salvation-shaping words of God in motion in our lives. He goes on to say, God's gracious purpose in giving us his word in written form is not to turn us into Bible students. Now, it's not that we don't study. I think studying's great. But, you know, God's not here to give us the answers and to make us intellectual geniuses and that it doesn't relate to our lives. That's not what God's about. But rather to provide a means by which we can hear him speak and to be turned into Christians, awed, worshipers, sacrificing sufferers, and devout followers. In other words, this vision is meant to blow us out of the water. You know, so that at the end of the day, we can, all we can do is worship God. All we can do is my God, this is amazing. I mean, can you imagine when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, just kind of comes through the wall, and here's old poor Thomas. He had missed the first meeting, you know. And uh, when he saw Jesus, what do you think he did? He worshiped. He just bowed. He fell at his face on the ground. You know, isn't it amazing that John, the one that was the closest to Jesus in his earthly life, when he has this vision in chapter 1, what does he do? He falls down as if he were dead. It's an amazing thing to see God in his glory. We need to understand that. It, we're not going to be walking around going, hey, this is awesome, cool, man. No, you're going to be blown away by it. It's going to, it will actually be somewhat terrifying in some ways. It'll be awe-inspiring. It'll move us. So I want us to turn to chapters 4 and 5 and have a glimpse into heaven tonight. And I think that's going to change what we're experiencing on earth. The very nature of worship. It brings about a transformation to our soul and changes us from the inside out. And so Warren Worsby says this, The change on the outside is the normal and natural expression of the nature on the inside. In other words, when you and I are changed on the inside, when we're worshiping, it's changing what's going to happen to us on the outside. The change begins on the inside. That's what he's saying. But when a Christian conforms to this world and fashions his or her life after the pattern of unbelievers, that's what the pressure is all about, if you don't know. You go, why is, why is it since I became a Christian there's so much pressure? Because you and I are being pressured to conform to the values of this culture that have abandoned God. He is changed on the outside. So the change is not coming from within. It is not a metamorphosis, which, you know, when you know what that means, it's like the caterpillar being uh, changed into the butterfly. That's, that's what, you know, spiritual development looks like. But rather, it's a masquerade. And so, you know, a lot of people, 
you know, make a pretense of being Christians. It's all image management. It's all on the outside, but there's nothing happening on the inside. You know, I want to just say this. You can have all the information in the world, but if you don't have an experience of God's Spirit, you're not changing. It's real simple. I don't care how much knowledge we have. You know, there are people with, ex- with tremendous degrees. They're actually scholars, but they're not being changed. They're just masquerading. That's the reality. And that's a tragedy in my mind. So let's take a look at two truths that remind us again of God's greatness over man's inabilities, weaknesses, pride, and evil. In other words, two eternal reasons why God is worshipped. And the first one is simply because God is a creator. We need to be reminded that life does not originate with us. We are not the source of life. Do you realize that? It's not about us, folks. And I'm going to really challenge us tonight. That is a huge problem when you and I are at the center of our lives. God is not here for our sake, but we are here for his sake. Our self-centeredness needs to be challenged. As a matter of fact, I'm going to argue that the people who are mentally unhealthy are the people who constantly live in their problems and it's all about them. It's a sign of, of uh, unhealthiness in your life. This is what's got to change at the very center of our lives. And you know what worship does? It moves you off yourself. And it moves you towards God. And that's what has to happen in our life. C.S. Lewis said it this way, to love and admire anything outside of yourself is to take one step away from utter spiritual ruin. You know what I tell people? You know, some people, this is what my experience is working with people. Some people never get beyond their problems. They just come from problem to problem to problem. Every time I talk to them, it's about them and it's about their problems. Anybody met people like that? Some of you go, man, pastor, that might even be talking about me tonight. Good news. I'm not putting you down. I'm telling you how to get out of it. How many would like to be free from the bondage of sin and self? Anybody like to be really delivered from that? Well, that's good. Hang on. I'm going to explain how it happens. What you need to do is stop looking at yourself. Step one. You know, we used to sing a chorus when I was a brand new Christian, and it went something like this. Forget about yourself and concentrate on him and worship him. The greatest thing we can do is stop focusing in on ourselves. You go, yeah, but I got all these problems. That's the problem. You know, don't you think the rest of us don't have problems? You think you're the only person on the planet with problems? Some people I talk to, you think they're the only person on this planet with problems. Listen, every single person has problems. But some people allow the problems to define them as a human being. And I'll tell you what, in the world you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We just read that text in John 16, verse 33. Focus on the greatness of Almighty God. God is greater than our problems tonight. Woo! Get your eyes on Jesus. And I notice that when I'm looking to Jesus, the problems don't look so big. As a matter of fact, no matter how great the problem is, if I know that Jesus is in the boat with me, I know he can speak to the storm and stop the wind and the waves and bring us to a desired end. So we have to do that in our lives. Paul reminds us in his letter to the Colossians, he said, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean he's the first one born. 
That word literally means he is preeminent over all creation. Jesus is above creation because he's the creator. And it says in the next verse, how do you know that, pastor? Read the context. And the context says, for by him all things were created. Who created all things? God did. But here in our text, he's speaking of Jesus Christ. And it says, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him. And what's the last little expression? And for him. You were created for God. You were created for God. You know, we don't just create a God because we need him. That's what the world says that they think we're doing as Christians. No! God is the creator and we were created for him. And God has a design for every single life. God has a plan for all of our lives. Woohoo! And you know, most of us go, I don't really want to know it, Pastor, because I just want to live my quiet, little, safe, and comfortable and convenient life. Come on now, any amens there? Isn't that what I want? You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because deep down inside, we don't like to be in a place of, that's not comfortable. Amen? And here's the other thing. How many know you never develop and grow when you're in a state of comfort? You know what? I started making some very radical decisions as I've gotten older. And I've just said, you know what? I'm going to push myself out of my box and out of my comfort zone so I can keep growing. I've done all kinds of crazy things. You know, I took up tap dancing. I'll use that as an illustration. I started dancing with my daughter. Do you know how humbling it is to start tap dancing in your 50s? And we were in competition. And the first year we went out and competed, the kids that were just starting, like me, I'm 50-something, I'm and they're like five and six. They're cute, and they're just learning how to tap dance. And I'm looking at them, and I'm saying, I think they're doing it better than I am. <laughs> and you're standing up there dancing in front of people. How many say, humbling? You know, that's embarrassing, you say. I couldn't do that. Hey, but year two, I was getting better because I was actually moving up. I was past the five and six-year-olds. Now, at least I was dancing at a level probably where the seven and eight-year-olds were going. And then the third year, I was actually getting up there where it was actually somehow making sense. You know what I'm saying? I'm just letting you know. But you know how uncomfortable it was? My dance teacher, she was kind of disappointed when I stopped because I'm sure I was her great event on Tuesday night. Every time we went in for a rehearsal, my daughter and I, she would be howling. She'd go, I just showed you the step. It was a lot easier than what you just did. I can't understand how you even did that. And I said to her, it's real simple. My mind is telling me to do what you showed me, but my body's going, we haven't done this before. You know, it's crazy. You know, and then you start doing things like learning other languages, you know, and especially, you know, when you're, you know, how many know you get this Indo-European language that goes from, you know, what, left to right. But you start learning Hebrew, it goes from right to left. How many know your mind's going, what are we doing here? It's going the wrong direction. I'm just pointing these things out. It is humbling to learn new things, to get outside of our comfort zones. But, you know, all of us go, no, I don't want to do that. We're afraid to what? fail. And failure is a part of learning. Failure is a part of learning, guys, gals. It's a part of developing. Well, let's take a look at this text here. It says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, I want to just tell you the good news. You know, when you're worried about how things are falling apart, Jesus is holding them all together. 
Isn't that what it just says? He holds everything together. You know, I remember as a brand new Christian, this is what I used to think. You know, I'm hanging on to God. I'm hanging on to God. I always felt like if I let go, that's the end of me. You know, then I realized something. God says, you can let go now. I've been hanging on to you the whole time. You're not going anywhere. I go, thank God. You know, God is holding on to us. He's holding our world together, folks. Do you think these human leaders in their lack of wisdom are keeping our world from destroying itself? Nope. Nope, they're not doing it. My confidence is not in these people. My confidence is in Christ. He's holding it all together. How many can say, thank God Jesus is holding our world together? How many can say amen to that? He's holding our world together. Thank you, Lord. You know, some of you say, my world's falling apart. Jesus is holding it together. Yeah, but it feels that way. Yeah, that's your emotions. God is in control, folks. So what's happening in this fourth chapter? Well, we're now moving away from the visions to the churches. And in the fourth chapter, it says here, After this I looked up, and there was before me a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. I like this. Leon Morris, who's a New Testament scholar, points out that you know John seems to be captured by this vision of the throne of God. He uses the word throne 47 times out of a total of 62 times in the New Testament here in the book of Revelation. So why is throne such a big deal? Well, the word there... They were familiar with thrones. They had kings ruling. Caesar was on his throne. They were troubled by all that Caesar was doing in their world. Yet John would not let them forget that there was a throne above every single throne. Isn't that great? Thrones speak of authority and power. What has authority over my life and your life? You know, and for some, you know, it's either we're, we're, we're actually... We're either, you know, under the power and authority of God and his grace and his mercy. We're under the authority of sin and Satan and death, right? And that which we worship, which we give our lives to, determines what has authority in our lives. So we have to choose. That's why Joshua said to the people, choose you this day, whom will you serve? When you and I choose to serve God day in and day out, that's the authority over our lives. Isn't that great? Choose to serve God. The worship of God, this is what worship does to you. It actually centers your life. It actually gives you a focal point. It actually helps you not to be tossed to and fro. And Eugene Peterson points out, in worship, God gathers his people to himself as to a center. It's that meeting at the center of our lives when it's centered in God and not lived in ourselves. You know, the problem with being self-centered and selfish is that we've made our lives ourselves the center, and it's a poor center. We need to make God at the center of our lives. As a matter of fact, he goes on and says this, Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every emergency. In other words, we're up and down. We, we're, we're actually defined by the circumstances of life. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy. People who do not worship are swept into vast restlessness, epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. That's pretty powerful stuff. And by the way, if you don't think that's real, that's exactly what's happening. And I just had a young man that, you know, he just gave his life to Christ just a little over a week ago. And you know what he said to me? I finally found something that makes sense in my life. I finally found Jesus. This is giving me the purpose I need to live. Isn't that beautiful? 
That's a confession from a brand new Christian. He gets this. He understands what this is about. Justin Cornwall says, Worship helps us find who we are and why God has placed us here on the earth. When we bow in God's presence with worship, only then are we made complete. We're made whole. We're made healthy. Powerful, isn't it? The throne is described in terms of precious stones and a rainbow. It says in verse 3, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. And so here we have this picture of light, and we have a picture of the throne. Regarding those around the throne, there's much speculation as to their identity. But we read in verse 4, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns and gold on their head. And now John moves from those who are participants to the actual activity around the throne of God in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. How many remember reading these words somewhere else in the Bible? And if you said at Mount Sinai, you'd have the right answer. Isn't that exactly what's happening? Now, do you want to know how terrifying it is to just be around one mountain that's about exploding? You know, I I actually was driving from Spokane to Seattle when Mount St. Helen unleashed. And I'm going to tell you something. I was hundreds of miles away from that volcano, but ash was just flowing my way. And, I mean, and this was such an amazing experience. It was 1981, May. I'm driving down I-90, and Patty's sitting with me. And in one moment, the car in front of us, it was getting darker. I thought it was a rainstorm because I wasn't listening to the radio. And then all of a sudden, everything around me disappeared. It looked like the end of the world. It looked like we had landed on Mars or the moon. I mean, it was really amazing. Patty thought the world had just come to an end. And then later on, we found out, you know, when Mount St. Helen exploded, you know, remember those atomic bombs like Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, when Mount St. Helen's exploded, it was like a hundred times the power of an atomic bomb. One mountain erupted, and that was the kind of absolute power that was released. Now, I want you to get in your mind here a picture of the absolute power of Almighty God. Do you have an idea how frightening that would be? That's why I said if we encounter God, do you think this is going to be, you know, hey, cool dude, high five it? I don't think so. You're going to get a Mount St. Helens experience. It's going to blow you away. You're going to be a little bit overwhelmed by it. And then it says here, this is the response as they're experiencing, as John's experiencing this, the people around the throne are experiencing God. This is what it says. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. Notice the key word, lyca. It's a metaphor. It's a simile, right? How many know this is not actually what's there? And why don't we just remind us of something of the language of Revelation. How many have actually read the book of Daniel where Daniel has a vision of four different beasts and then later on God gives him an interpretation of what those beasts are about and it's actually these nations that are conquering the world. So you need to understand this is not literal stuff that's happening right now. This is symbolic. This is giving us a picture of the magnitude and greatness of Almighty God. And then it says the four living creatures was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third like had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And most believe that these living creatures represent what is the noblest, the lion, which is the strongest, the ox, which is the wisest humanity, though sometimes I put a question mark, and swiftest in creation, the flying eagle. Each of these four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. 
Now, this is speaking of eternal vigilance. In other words, they're seeing, they're keeping an eye out on things. And then under their wings, they even had uh, eyes all around, even under their wings. And then day and night, they never stop saying. Listen to what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What is the essential nature of God then? It's his holiness. Now, then it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sit on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives there forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, in Revelation, we are struck with this amazing essential equality of God, his holiness. The simple repetition is impressive. So is the fact that holiness comes first. John's reader lived in a world, as we do, where evil was rampant and apparently all-powerful. Doesn't it seem that way? Especially when you're in a situation where evil is prevailing. You know, think of living in Rwanda when there was that genocide going on. How many think that's prevailing evil? And at that moment, people are being murdered left, right, and center. A million people died. Isn't that a terrifying experience? Wouldn't you think at that moment, no justice, total evil, evil unleashed, evil rampant. But then you've got to have this vision of heaven, okay? Where goodness seems to be weak and it's frustrated and it seems ineffectual. But John's very first vision of heaven shows that these appearances are deceptive. We think these things are not making a difference. You see, we look at this... Um, you know, God is holy and he's the Lord God Almighty. Real power is not with evil, but with the God who is holy. We're going to take a look at how God defeats evil. How does God defeat evil? Well, let's look at it. The second reason that causes us to worship is the greatness of him as Savior or Redeemer. Which means that God's able to reclaim and restore what sin has robbed from us. The price, the cost that God paid to take evil and use it for good is the sacrificial death of Christ. The last chapter ended with the worship of the Creator. This chapter ends with the worship of the Redeemer. These two chapters are very important in understanding this book. Simply put, it's simply this, that in this world, throughout the history of mankind, there's always been evil. And when you're looking from, you know, the the earthly vantage point, it always seems that evil is winning. It always seems like evil is triumphing. It always seems like there's so much injustice. It always seems like terrible things are happening. And it just seems like we're always at a loss how to handle it. That's how it seems. But the moment we start looking into heaven, what we begin to see is a totally different picture. God's goodness is prevailing all the time. People are worshiping God. Evil is actually on its way out. You know, when, when do you think things really began to change in the human experience? I'll give you the picture. World War II, there was a huge battle called D-Day. At that moment, when that battle was won, that was actually the end of the war. And it wasn't until afterwards, the victory day in Europe, that the battle actually, the conflict came to an end. And I want to just declare to you, when, and we're going to look at this. It's going to come up here later on in the, in the book of Revelation. When Jesus Christ died and rose again, he literally defeated the powers of darkness. That, their day has come to an end. Evil is, is doing everything it can in its last moments, its last gasps of survival to sustain itself in our world. But you know what? The outcome is not uncertain. We know what's going to happen. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. 
We often feel ourselves caught up in the world's evil and misery and we just can't seem to break free. Some of us become rigid determinists and we hope at all times or at times feel a sense of hopelessness and helplessness in the grip of forces stronger than ourselves. The the world's agony is totally real. The world's inability to break free from the consequences of its sin and shame and guilt is very real. But this chapter, with its seals that no one can break free, stresses the human inability. Can I just say something? As much as we try to change the problems of our world, we're so weak. How many say that's true? We try to legislate righteousness. It doesn't work. People are still evil on the inside. There's a weakness in humanity. That's what I'm trying to get at. It's just we can't do this on our own. How many in this room can finally see, I just can't do it anymore, God. I can't do it on my own. And the answer is, that's right, you can't. God is bringing you to the end of yourself so that you will learn to trust him. And here again in the fifth chapter, we see the worshiping community around God's throne. Verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. You know when you get these kind of numbers, you know what it's saying? You can't count them. There's so many. It's, it's uh, limitless. Around the throne of God, there's limitless worshipers, okay? They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So how does God defeat evil? I'm glad you asked that question. It's a lamb that defeats the evil. The most helpless, dependent creature on the planet. The one that can't defend himself is the one who's going to defeat all evil. How many think that's an amazing imagery? Does anybody think that's kind of amazing? How did Jesus defeat evil? He died. It appeared. The appearance was that when Jesus Christ was arrested and crucified, every demon in hell was rejoicing. They had just crucified the Messiah. And in reality, what they had actually done was fulfill God's great purpose. How's that? God does the very opposite. So when people render us evil, when we, how do we overcome that? Doing good. Doing good. Yeah. We suffer. Here's the point I want to make. You and I win by losing. You and I win by losing. You need to write that down. It's the truth. Jesus says, what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? But if you're willing to lose your soul for my sake, Jesus says, you win. You win by losing. And that's true in every aspect of life. You win by losing. Isn't that amazing? Want me to give you some examples? You win by losing. You know what? I was with someone very dear to my heart. They're literally, they're actually, their body is their master. They can't even do anything. They're so overweight, they can hardly move. Their body has them imprisoned. You know how they would win? By losing. Right? You can feed your flesh and you die. But if you deny the flesh, you win by losing. It's amazing. It's the way it works. It's so crazy. It just seems like the opposite in your mind. But that's in the physical realm. Same thing in the spiritual realm. So why were they worshiping the lamb? It's through Christ's action as a lamb that was slain for his sins that were purchased from our sin. It's action on God's uh, action of God on our behalf. Evil is conquered not through um, military might and power, but through death and sacrifice. Victory is accomplished in weakness. I mean, it just goes against our understanding. 
You know, somebody treats me terribly, I forgive them. It's almost like I'm the wimp, right? I'm forgiving. No, that's strength. That's winning through losing. You know, we're, no, we're not defeated by that. Somebody comes along and they kill us physically, but they can't destroy our soul. We win through losing. What happens if we die? To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? A loss. That's how we act. No, it's a gain. I'm with Christ. Away from all the temptations, away from all the sin, away from all the sorrow, away from all the agony. It's amazing. I win. You know? So there's a picture of the lamb. The chapter begins with a problem. And then it's told what we can do about it. You know, there's a seal. There's seals on this scroll that are, the, the, the scroll has, has seven seals on it. Nobody can open it. Look at verse one. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And then John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, the scroll is actually the messages of God. The scroll is actually what God's purposes are. Nobody could seem to release that. Nobody seemed worthy, but we know the answer. Yes, there is one. Now we read of the worthiness of Christ in verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw not a lion, but what did he see? A lamb. Now this is all imagery, folks. It's just showing you how, the one, how do you conquer the evil with, as a lion were you, you know, force against force? No, it's a lamb that's conquering the evil. It's an amazing picture. Looking as if he had been slain. You know, I had some other graphics. I could have showed you some poor little lambs being slaughtered. You want to go, oh, yeah, don't want to do that. Don't want to distract your minds. But that's what's happened. You know, poor little lamb that was slain. Right? That's what wins the day. It's an image. It's in our weakness. It was in Christ's weakness It was in God's weakness that he conquered the worst evil of humanity. He says, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes. Do you think Jesus has seven horns and seven eyes? Of course not. Symbolic language. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So the Father is giving... The purposes that they had jointly counseled to the Lamb. He takes it. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I love this imagery. Do you know what happens when you and I are praying? Our prayers are like incense going before Almighty God. This is amazing to me. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men from God, for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Where, now, it's interesting, this little word, they will reign. I've got to just stop and say one thing. There's a lot of disputes, scholarly disputes over this little expression. You say, why? Because that all sounds like it's future, right? Hello? Doesn't it sound? They will reign. 
You know, some of them argue, say, no, that's the wrong tense. It's actually, they will, they are reigning. Now, I've got to ask a question. Where are we, biblically speaking, in the book of Ephesians? Where are we? Do you know where we're actually? If we're in Christ, we're in the where? We're in the heavenly places. Where is Jesus? On the throne. So where are we? We're, on, we're with Jesus. We're on the throne. Do you know what's happening? We're ruling and reigning with Christ. See, we have a kingdom here. And the people who actually have authority on the planet are some of the weakest people. Now, sometimes as a church, they get together. Maybe there's 20 people. They're in a community. And here they are worshiping God. And they may feel like they're having no impact. But I'm going to just say something. You know what, what happens when you and I pray? That's part of the way we execute our reign on earth. How do you like that? I mean, if you knew that your prayers were actually facilitating a reign on earth, what do you think of what happened when you start praying? You're just going, wow, I'm participating with Jesus Christ in the leadership and rulership of this planet. When I'm praying, I'm actually calling forth things that are not into being. That's pretty powerful stuff, I would say. Anybody getting a little excited about our position? But here we walking around going, you know, I just feel like I'm a wimp. I get beat up, you know. I'm focused on my problems, you know. That's kind of how we operate as people. I'm going, if you really knew who you were as a Christian, you wouldn't even think this way. First of all, you know God's in control of all things, that you're ruling and reigning with him, and that the evil has already been defeated. How many go, that's a totally different vision? What's our problem? We're, we have a vision of life strictly from a human perspective. And that's why Revelation is a book of hope. How many can begin to say, hey man, this book is really amazing. It's actually giving me hope. It's encouraging me. Let me close with this illustration. How many like Philip Yancey? He's a Christian author. Yancey was telling the story when he was in high school. He said, I was a real nerd. I didn't say that. He did. You know, he said, I, I, I joined the chess club. You know, when you guys were in high school, I, I actually, I transferred when I was, in, I was in Canada and then I went to the United States and they had all these clubs in the U.S. So I can relate to what Yancey's talking about. They have a club for everything down there. So, you know, you can join the chess club. And he said, you know, we were the nerds and we were like looking up the great master movements of chess, you know, because there's all these different classical moves. How many know they can actually read books and how to play the game and there's different movements that you can take? And he said, I got pretty good. I was kind of winning most of the time, you know learning these classical moves in chess. But he said, you know, I, after high school, I kind of just put it aside. I wasn't playing chess anymore and just went on with my life. And about 20 years later, I met a guy in Chicago and he said, hey, you want to get together? And he said, yeah, and they were chatting. And he said, you play chess? Yeah, said, well, yeah, I played years ago, but I haven't played for a long time. He said, well, why don't we have a game? And he said, this guy was amazing. He said, I tried to pull out my classical moves. Every move I made, he won. You know, it was like everything I was doing was just like I was working into his plan. And then he said, so then I said, I, I, I've got to do something totally different. He knows all those moves. So he says, I'll be really unorthodox. I'll do things he won't expect. And, you know, how many know that he, he says, I'd make a move. Whoops, wrong move. It always costs me. And that's the way it is in our lives. You know, a lot of times we're, we have a will, right, as a human being. And we're making decisions. We're making moves. And all of a sudden we make the wrong room, move. And all of a sudden, bang, Man, is that painful. That really cost me because I'm doing my own thing. I'm going against what God wants. I'm making all of these moves. I'm not moving forward. I'm not winning. I'm not living out the plan that I dreamed. I'm messing my life up. Anybody relate to what I'm just saying? Can you relate to this? But he said the chess master on the other side, it seemed like every move I made, it's almost like, good, that's exactly what I wanted you to do. I'm going to fulfill my perfect purpose for this game. And every single game he won. He said, you know, I had a vision when I was playing this game. I had a little sense, and this is what uh, Yancey says in conclusion. He said, 
Uh, perhaps God engages our universe, his own creation, in much the same way. He grants us freedom to rebel against its original design, but even as we do so, we end up ironically serving his eventual goal of restoration. Isn't that amazing? You and I think we're doing our own thing. We're getting away from what God wants. God goes, no, I see that move. I see that move. I'm going to work it into my plan. And even the craziest things in the world, even the worst evils, the worst tragedies that come along, God says, you know what? I'm going to take this tragedy now. If you will surrender it to me, I will take this in your life and I will use it for good. I will use it for good. Let's stand tonight as we close in prayer. I don't know about you, as I'm reading through Revelation, I'm encouraged. This book is designed to reveal Christ to us. You know, a lot of people, they're trying to figure it out. They've got all these ideas. They've got all their graphs and charts. I've been taught all this stuff. But I think this book is really designed to encourage us. This book is designed to give us hope. How many like this? How many like that vision of heaven that we're getting? Is that encouraging? How many said, I was encouraged tonight? You know, no matter how much evil, how much craziness is going around, God is still in control. As a matter of fact, what are some of the things I can learn from tonight? Well, first of all, I can learn that I could literally release my self-centered life and surrender absolutely and put Christ at the center. You know, with every head bowed right now, that's you. I'm speaking right to your heart tonight. The Holy Spirit's speaking right to your heart tonight. You're saying, you know what? My problem is I've lived a self-centered life. I've been at the center. But tonight, I want to surrender to Christ and allow him to be at the center of my life. I don't want to make problems the focus of my life. I don't want to be living and defined by the problems of my life. I want to actually live in the victory God has for me. If that's you, just raise your hand. That's where you're at tonight. Okay, quite a few of you respond to that. That's good. That's good. God sees that heart cry. I believe God can literally transform your life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Maybe you're here tonight and you're saying, Pastor, there's been so much evil in my life, so much tragedy, so much sorrow, so much loss. But tonight, God is speaking a word of hope to you. I have everything in control. I have everything in control. Even though you may feel emotionally, mentally, You may even feel it physically. You might feel it on every level. You feel like your world is unraveling. But I'm speaking this word to you tonight from the spirit of the living God. God says, I have it all under control. God's speaking to you tonight. Just raise your hand. That's you. God's talking to you tonight. You feel like your world is spinning under control, but God says, I've got it all together. I'm holding your life. My plan is bigger and greater than your plan. I've moved you outside the comfort zone so that you can become the person I designed you to be. How many say that's a marvelous thing? Do you like that? I love that. But I'll tell you something. It's very uncomfortable. It's very humbling. You know, you have to trust God. You're not in control. You know what we want to do? We want to manipulate. Come on now. Isn't that true? I want to control things. I want to manipulate it. I want it to work a certain way. But it's not going to work that way. God's plan is better than your plan. God's plan is better than my plan. Isn't that awesome? How many are hearing that tonight? Do you love that? Amen. So I'm going to pray for us. Let's just lift our hands to God and say, Lord, I want want you to be at the center. And I want you to be running my life, not me. I've been doing that long enough. You know what? And even though I'm a smart person, I'm not smart enough. How many go, you're not smart enough? Do you know what tomorrow holds? I have no idea. Do you know how the stock market's going to work? I have no idea. Do you know who's going to be the next prime minister? I have no idea. 
Do you know his next, next premier? No idea. I have no idea of what's going to happen. Does anybody else have any idea? Well, we can kind of try to forecast, you know. How many anticipated the NDP was going to win the last provincial election? You knew that. You absolutely knew that. Most of us had no clue. We were all sitting there going, really? Come on now. What am I trying to tell us? I'm trying to tell you, you and I are not that smart. So why, why do we think we can kind of manipulate our lives and control things? Then we're all mad at God because it's not working out the way I planned it. You know? Well, maybe God has a bigger plan. He has a different plan. Yeah. You know, how many would plan sorrow in your life? Anybody? Raise your hand. You'd plan sorrow in your life. No, I wouldn't plan that. You say, why does God allow that? Well, first of all, you know, God allows things in our lives for an ultimate purpose and reason. You know, it, it amazes me, the lady that uh, lost her children and grandchildren, she's lost every single person in her life. She has nobody left. But you know who became her closest friend? One of the ladies in our church who had lost a son, an adult son, recently, in the last year or so. She's her best friend. How many know that probably is a design thing by God? That this person who has experienced loss can walk beside the person who's experiencing loss. You know, don't you think there's going to be losses in this world? Of course there is. God knows what he's doing, my brothers and sisters. He knows what he's doing. We've got to trust him. So, Lord, I come before you. We want to have our lives where you're at the center. We want to trust you with the ultimate plan and purposes of our lives. Lord, we, we just surrender to you because we know your plan is greater than our plan. And yes, there'll be moments where it'll be uncomfortable. There'll be moments where it's humbling. But Lord, help us not to take ourselves so seriously. And help us to be willing to humble ourselves before you. Because your word says if we will do that in due time, you will lift us up. You will help us develop. You'll help us grow. You'll help us to become better people. I pray today for those that are suffering. You know, I think of some, and I'm aware of some that are suffering. And Lord, they're experiencing loss and heartache and hurt. And I pray that the, the, the balm of your presence, your presence alone can bring healing in our soul. Lord, I pray for grace and comfort and goodness to flood our lives. I pray, Father, that we will be messengers of hope, messengers of grace, messengers of love and kindness, Lord, that we will help overcome the evil in our world because we will be so full of your life and so full of your presence that we will actually overcome, even though we may feel ourselves as being weak, Lord. It's in our weakness that we're actually strong. It's when we don't feel like we have it all together that we learn to trust you. When, when Lord, evil is done to us, Lord, we can render kindness and goodness and forgiveness. Help us to understand it's in our, our relationship with you as we're uh, praying before you that we're actually ruling and reigning with you on this planet. Help us to understand who we are and what our position really is in our world. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.